0: You know, I was just hanging out on the couch, plucking around earlier. Plucking. I said plucking. I did. Go back. Listen to it. Uh, I asked Haley if she had any requests for anything that she wanted me to play. And for some reason, she seemed to kind of be annoyed. And she asked me if I could play really, really far away. Any of you guys know who that's by or have tabs for it? The podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and induce men of peer acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. So this episode was actually recorded as another backup in case my work trip got extended. Uh, after all this, I'm out of pre-recorded episodes. So if you don't hear from me for a bit, maybe I'm still at work. Maybe. I got kidnapped. Who knows? Either way, I hope there's a guitar in my cell. English musician Elton John has finished his farewell tour entitled Farewell Yellow Brick Road. His tour began over three years ago in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he's just played his last show as of July 8th in Sweden. This tour consisted of over 300 different concerts across the world and has now taken the record as the top-grossing tour of all time grossing over $900 million as of this recording. Along with the documentary, the concerts have been recorded for both your viewing pleasure, as well as using the footage in a documentary that's set to be released on Disney+, Plus titled Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, The Final Elton John Performances. Disney+, Plus has live-streamed at least one of the shows at Dodger Stadium up to this point, including collaborative performances by stars like Dua Lipa and Kiki D., You know, it's kind of crazy when you think about just how much Elton John has done in his lifetime. He isn't just Elton John, he's technically Sir Elton John, as he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 1998, and he was just recently appointed a member of the Order of Champions of Honor in 2020 by now King Charles. Elton John has been touring since 1962, first as a part of a band called Bluesology, and then as a solo artist. He's worked on films like The Lion King and Billy Elliot the Musical, and even already had one movie made about him titled Rocket Man. That's, you know, more movies than most people ever have made about them, and he's about to get a second one. Uh, Not just viewing his accomplishments from a musical lens, he actually created a charity for AIDS research in 1992, and he's since raised over 300 million pounds sterling for AIDS research and care. Just reading his biography seems to lead to the fact that he has this super crazy life, and while I was never really a big fan of his music, it's always sad to see a legend like him finally throw in the towel and stop touring. I feel like I at least owe it to myself to watch Rocket Man now. Don't you? <laughs> Epiphone has just announced the release of a new signature guitar, collaborating with Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson to deliver the Les Paul custom access. This guitar really just looks like a Les Paul in shape only as it's got a Floyd Rose 1000 tremolo, a sleek transparent red finish revealing a quilted maple veneer and Grover tuners. The really interesting thing has to do with the actual controls. So the guitar has an Epiphone Ceramic Pro in the neck and a Pro Bucker 3 in the bridge, standard outfits for Epiphone Les Pauls, but it's got coil splits for both the humbuckers on push-pull pots, as well as a phase-reversal push-pull tone pot for the neck pickup. It's honestly pretty intuitive for a Les Paul. As for the construction itself, it's a mahogany body and neck with an ebony fingerboard, and while it's still a set neck like a traditional Les Paul, it actually has a carved neck heel for easier access to the higher frets. Come to think of it, I know that's always one of my complaints when it comes to traditional Les Pauls. The neck heel is really blocky and it prevents you from comfortably hitting those extremely high notes and solos, so I like that they added that. What I do like about this is how it takes a traditional Les Paul and it tweaks it just enough to cater to someone with more modern tastes. While they certainly exist, there's not many Les Paul models that include a Floyd Rose on them stock, and Floyd Rose tremolos are a nightmare to install aftermarket, even if you get the service mount version of the Floyd. I like the finish here. It's another non-traditional point of the guitar, although I do think the gold sort of clashes with the red a bit. I wish they would have gone for something like black nickel hardware instead of gold, but I digress. All in all, it looks like a pretty interesting guitar, but the price point is a little painful at around 1300 bucks. It's on sale now if it's something that you think you'd be interested in, coming in both left- and right-handed versions. Okay, so at the risk of sounding like a comedian saying, what's the deal with airline food, I'm going to ask this rhetorical question. What's the deal with all these double-sided drive pedals lately? Like, I get, they're cool. I get that a lot of people stack drive pedals together, but personally, I think I just feel weird using a double-sided drive pedal. Some examples of this are the coveted Analog Man King of Tone, which is two identical bluesbreaker circuits that possess different levels of gain on each side. Another is the JHS Double Barrel. One side of it is a modified clone of a Tube Screamer, and the other side is a modified clone of a bluesbreaker. I understand the concept, for sure, but what I don't get is why they're becoming so popular recently. The most recent release in this onslaught of dual overdrives is made by a Spanish company called Finding That Tone. They've announced that they're releasing the Ambar Dual Overdrive, claiming that one side of this pedal is a TS-10-style circuit, and the other side is a Klon-style circuit. They seem to really be targeting John Mayer fans here. The Tube Screamer side has your usual suspects control-wise with knobs for volume, drive, and tone, as well as an added presence knob and a stock-slash-open switch, which, when in the right position, cuts the bass and treble to bring the mids even more to the front of your tone. The Klon side includes controls for gain and volume, but unlike the original, the AMBAR includes a dual-band EQ with both bass and treble controls. Each side of the AMBAR is independently foot-switchable, as almost every dual drive pedal is, and there's a nifty little toggle switch in the middle that allows you to reorder each side of the circuit to place either the TS-10 or the side first. Now, if you're somebody hunting after your new favorite dual stomp box, while I still don't necessarily understand the allure, you can head right over to Finding That Tone's website to pick one of these up for yourself at just around $230, US dollars, depending on the current exchange rate. So this week, I wanted to dive into the history of a specific gear manufacturer that undoubtedly everyone has heard of, Electroharmonics. They're one of the oldest operating effects pedal brands in history, and have produced classics such as the Big Muff, the Polyphonic Octave Generator, and the Electric Mistress, alongside more modern innovative devices such as their 9 Series, Ocean's 11 Reverb, and numerous other more complex effects. One of the topics I see brought up on Reddit a lot as a discussion point is if you were limited to only one pedal brand for the rest of your life, which one would you go with? And I think electroharmonics is the easy answer to this question, simply due to how wide of a variety of effects they produce. You've got everything from clones of classics, like their Tube Screamer clone, the East River Drive, and their Klon clone, the Soul Food, all the way to much more wild nonsense, like the Clockworks and the Pitchfork, they just cover so much ground, and I could sit there and play around with their whole product lineup and probably never get bored. Today, we're going to be taking a look back through time at the history and development of some of their most popular effects, as well as exploring some of my personal favorite newer effects to give us all a look at the background of this groundbreaking company. Let's get started. So Electroharmonics is really pioneered by this guy Mike Matthews. He's the cigar-smoking, muscle-flexing rebel that you'll see if you happen to get yourself a brand new electroharmonics pedal and open up the battery compartment. Yeah, Mike has this picture on every 9-volt battery shipped in one of their pedals. It's crazy. Mike Matthews grew up in New York City during the 1940s, constantly attempting to start small businesses by selling... Pretty much anything he could find, at one point, even selling prisms from World War II binoculars at school so students could create rainbows all over campus. Music was always part of Mike's life, beginning with learning the piano at a very young age, following along with musical trends at the time, and adapting his piano playing to suit. Mike's first concert was the Sawyer Brothers, who he saw in 1958 while attending Cornell University. Directly after this concert, he formed his own band and acted as their manager while also landing a gig at a local club as a band promoter. He got his foot in the door with large acts such as the Isley Brothers, the Lovin' Spoonful, and the Birds as well. Mike Matthews graduated from Cornell with degrees in both business management and electrical engineering, skills that would greatly serve him later on in life, and he went straight to work as a computer salesman for IBM while still retaining his side gig as a promoter eventually leading him to come into contact with one of the largest names in guitar history. See, one day in 1965, he booked Chuck Berry for two nights in Long Island, but he was responsible for finding the backup band. Another promoter called him and offered him the band Curtis Knight and the Squires, touting a guitarist who could play with his teeth. None other than Jimi Hendrix. Now, Mike Matthews and Jimi Hendrix established a working friendship before Jimi made it big, when he was still living in New York City, with Mike actually being one of the encouraging influences for him to branch out from being a supporting musician to starting his own band, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. In so far, Mike Matthews hasn't really done anything in terms of inventing music equipment. He's been using his electrical engineering degree to support his career at IBM, but that all changes one day when he gets into contact with a repairman named Bill Burko, who offers him a partnership creating fuzz pedals. The year is 1967. The Rolling Stones song Satisfaction has been out for two years now, and the fuzzy guitar track created by Keith Richards has taken the world by storm. So much so, that Gibson can't keep up with orders for the maestro fuzz tone pedal responsible for the sound, leaving a huge vacuum in the market. Mike Matthews begins to carve out a section of the market for himself by creating a pedal similar to the fuzz tone called the Foxy Lady, named so due to Jimi Hendrix's newfound fame and popular song. The key here, though, is that Mike Matthews never actually intended to make this as a career. He had an intense desire to simply quit IBM and go touring with a band, using the Foxy Lady manufacturing as a way to generate enough savings to afford it should the band fail. So Mike makes these pedals by hand with himself and one other contractor, one at a time, eventually landing a deal with Al Drange of Guild Guitars to buy them at wholesale. Mike makes batches of a couple hundred Foxy Ladies, drives them across the bridge to New Jersey, and he sells them to Guild to put their name and branding on them as a sort of OEM deal. A year later, in 1968, Mike Matthews scrounges up $1,000, about $8,700 in today's money, and he starts his own company with his first original product, the LPB-1 Linear Power Booster. The LPB-1 was originally designed as a distortion-free sustainer, which in today's gear state we'd simply call... clean boost but you gotta remember that back then there really wasn't a category for things like this he was making the category the lpb1 has an innovative design it uses only 13 parts eight of which are actual electrical components relying on a 2n 5088 silicon transistor to accomplish the actual boosting the other resistors and capacitors simply act as biasing methods and filtering for the transistor and a single volume knob controls the amount of boost. It's as simple as a boost circuit can get, really. The lpb one isn't really what we'd look at as a standard effects pedal either. It's similar to the old Dan Armstrong effects units, where it's this palm-sized box with a male quarter-inch jack on one side to plug directly into the guitar, and a female quarter-inch jack on the other side for your guitar cable. The effect is turned on or off by a single black slider switch in the enclosure itself. Here to demonstrate it, I've got a modern reissue of the LPB1 made by Electroharmonics themselves. This one actually comes in a pedal format, and while it's not the most transparent boost in the world, it's actually quite a bit darker than the input signal. It works extremely well for overdriving the input of your favorite amplifier. <laughs> The funny thing about the LPB-1's design was that Mike actually contracted Bob Meyer from Bell Labs to design the device. When he went to go see the first prototype, Meyer had a little box connected in between his sustainer and the guitar, explaining that the guitar's signal was too quiet for his prototype, so he'd built a single transistor boost. We don't exactly know what happened to the original prototype, but that little box in between was what became the LPB-1 because Mike liked it so much. Sort of a happy accident. On the test bench. <laughs> In 1969, Electro introduces undoubtedly their most famous pedal to date, the Big Muff Pi. The Big Muff Pi is an extremely unique design when it comes to fuzz pedals, with three large departures from the contemporary fuzz boxes of the time. The first is the number of transistors. Popular fuzz boxes like the Fuzz Tone, Fuzz Face, and Tone Bender use two or three transistors usually germanium, making them extremely impedance-sensitive and causing the transistor to become more spitty and gaty the hotter the ambient temperature around the transistors. The Big Muff has a total of four silicon transistors, making it less impedance-sensitive and negating the effect of ambient temperature on the sound of the pedal. While the input impedance at this point really doesn't make that much of a difference, it became a really neat trait as effects pedals became more popular later down the road, Allowing larger pedal boards with complex chains to have the Big Muff placed anywhere in the chain and have the same result, unlike other fuzz units. The second big departure is the inclusion of two pairs of 1N914 silicon diodes in the gain stages of the circuit. Contemporary fuzz boxes simply use their transistors to accomplish the actual fuzzing distortion, while the Big Muff uses a combination of both these clipping diodes and its transistors. The last big departure is the addition of a tone control. Early tone benders, fuzz faces, and fuzz tones only had two controls: one for fuzz and one for volume, labeled differently depending on the unit. With the Tone Bender Mark III produced the same year as the Big Muff, being the only other contemporary example of a tone control on a fuzz box. This tone control was revolutionary in the fact that it allowed players to tame some of the ice-picky high-end created by extreme levels of distortion that these fuzz units were capable of. Here, I've got the modern reissue of the first electroharmonic's Big Muff, called the Triangle, named so for the triangular pattern of knobs on the early version. As you probably heard, the only real downside to the Big Muff is that it's a very mid scooped fuzz. Most of the guitar's frequency range lives in the mids, and while scooping the mids may sound great for a bedroom tone, it tends to get your guitar very lost in the mix when it comes to playing with larger bands. If you like the character of the Big Muff, but you want your mids back, you can always use an EQ pedal in the chain directly after it to return some of the character and power to your guitar in the mix. The Big Muff is still easily Electro-Harmonix's best-selling pedal, with them selling over 3,000 of them a month. The Big Muff is also one of the most cloned circuits out there, with modern offerings like the Earthquaker Devices Hisumidas and Hoof, various Ren and Cuff offerings, the Wayhuge Swollen Pickle, and the JHS Muffaletta and Crimson. Mike Matthews has actually stated in an interview that he likes the fact that he's cloned so much, as his reissues are typically cheaper than the boutique clones. Every time a clone is released, it drives up interest in the Big Muff, and many people simply get an actual Electro-Harmonix-branded Big Muff instead. Just a quick note as well, during this time in 1971, Mike Matthews actually released something called the Freedom Amplifier, a small combo amp with controls for volume, tone, and bite that ran off of a whopping 40 D-cell batteries. Yeah, it was designed for venues that didn't have reliable power, but honestly, that many batteries just doesn't even seem worth it. One D-cell battery is almost half a pound, meaning that amp is 16 pounds in batteries alone. In 1973, our beloved Big Muff Pi gets an update with what's known as the Ram's Head Big Muff, so-called because of its little electro-harmonics Ram's Head graphic in the lower corner. This is one of the most popular versions of the Big Muff, with guitarists like David Gilmour and Jay Maskis swearing by it, as well as yours truly, It's definitely my favorite version of the Big Muff, it's got more gain on tap than the Triangle as well as a more evenly balanced frequency response that makes it more useful in a mix. It's not necessarily a large departure from the Triangle Muff, Electroharmonics didn't even market it any different until their reissues, it was just guitar players themselves making that distinction. Here, I've got the Electroharmonics Ram's Head Reissue Muff to demonstrate it. In 1974, the pedal market begins to grow, and Electroharmonics gains some competition a little too close to home in the form of Rochester based firm MXR Innovations. MXR hits the market with their ever popular Phase 90 phaser, a four stage phasing unit, and Electroharmonics is quick to react with a four stage, single speed knob phaser of their own, the Smallstone. While it might look like Electroharmonics simply copied MXR, the circuits are actually pretty different and the two units seemed to be developed concurrently, but not copying each other. Mike Matthews hired an engineer from EMS named David Cockerell, who created the Smallstone by using operational transductance amplifiers instead of op-amps. The Smallstone had a unique color switch, which introduced a feedback circuit into the audio path that makes the actual phasing effect much more intense, similar to the difference between the script and block logo MXR Phase 90s. If you had me pick between the two, The small stone is an easy winner. Now I can't find a for sure date on this next one, but it seems to be around 1975 when Electroharmonics Harmonix releases one of the first octave pedals on the market, the Octave Multiplexer. The Octave Multiplexer is an interesting beast. It's an analog octave down with three controls, a high filter, blend, and bass filter, as well as a two-position sub-toggle switch. It's a monophonic octaver, meaning it can only track one note at a time, but it does a great job of adding oodles of low-end to your tone. Here, I've got a modern reissue of the Octave Multiplexer, which includes all the same controls, less-than-desirable tracking included. I'll be honest, when I bought this years ago, I thought that I was getting a cheaper version of a POG. I plugged it in when I got it, and I was severely disappointed. (laughs) While I don't use it much anymore, the only thing I really use an analog octave down for is on my Doom board, and I've been running an Aguilar Optimizer there for a while now, it still held down the fort for quite a bit in that position, and it's worth noting if you're looking for something to use sparingly on the cheap. <laughs> 1976 was a big year for Electroharmonics, where two of their most popular pedal models were released, the Memory Man Analog Delay and the Electric Mistress Flanger. The 1976 version of the Memory Man was actually pretty tame as far as future versions would go, with three simple controls for blend, feedback, and a delay knob with a maximum time of only 300 milliseconds. The original Memory Man also featured a boost switch and a direct and effect output, for what it's worth, giving you the ability to run a wet-dry rig with it. Eventually, the Memory Man would see updates that included things such as chorus and vibrato effects, where you could emulate the flutter and decay of tape echo and analog delay by adding modulation to the repeats. The Memory Man continued to receive update after update, including tap tempo, longer delay times up to 1100 milliseconds, and finally my favorite version, the Stereo Memory Man with Hazarai Hazerai being a Yiddish phrase that means junk food or the kitchen sink. It's basically a memory man with all kinds of features such as tap tempo, presets, looping, and seven different delay modes to include a reverse delay. It's an insanely fun pedal. Moving on to the Electric Mistress, it's still one of the most coveted flangers of all time. Designed by David Cockrell, just like the Smallstone, the first Electric Mistress included controls for rate, range, and color, the latter being a form of feedback, along with a unique filter matrix switch that would freeze the LFO in a specific position to allow you to get a crazy, paused-flange sort of sound. The original Electric Mistress was plagued with issues such as volume drop, loud background noise, and clock noise where you can hear the clock of the LFO whining or ticking. Like many electroharmonics effects, the Electric Mistress has seen various updates and reissues, with one of my favorites being the budget-friendly and compact Neo Mistress. This two-knob flanger includes controls for rate and feedback, with the rate knob doubling as a sort of filter matrix. It's a great, basic flanger with loads of vintage Electric Mistress character sans the clock noise. 1976 also saw the release of my least favorite Electroharmonics pedal of all time, the Dr. Q Envelope Follower. Now, many people are familiar with the Electroharmonics' Qtron Envelope Filter. It's honestly one of the best options out there when it comes to that quacky, funky effect, and we'll get to it. But before the Qtron, there was the one knob train wreck of the Dr. Q. This thing's only control was a range control to adjust the amount of sweep in the envelope, as well as a toggle switch to either remove or maintain the bass frequencies. There's even little trim pots inside the pedal to help you adjust the circuit to match your input signal, but the trim pot honestly doesn't help that much. Now, of course, I can't sit here and talk trash on a pedal without showing you why I really don't like it. Instead of the funky quack that we normally associate with envelope filters, the Dr. Q produces this weird, swishy sort of static sweep that isn't auditorily pleasing or unique at all. There's also a very intense volume drop at the start of the sweep in certain positions, and it straight up does not work with some rigs, especially lower output pickups. If you're going for an envelope filter, this is one situation where I'd recommend not picking this up just because it's cheap. I think it goes for like less than 50 bucks used in most cases, but trust me, it's not worth it. There's a reason it's going for that cheap, you'll outgrow it as soon as you plug it in. Here's an example.
1: All
0: right, now that we're past that, in 1978, the growing business of electroharmonics is booming. Mike Matthews is recognized as New York's Small Business Person of the Year for the entire state. They're selling $5 million a year in product, the equivalent of about $23 million in 2023. They're becoming an extremely large company. They released three more new models that same year, the Slapback Echo, the Screaming Bird Treble Booster, and the ever-popular Op-Amp Big Muff. The Slapback Echo is an analog delay unit with a single knob to blend in the amount of echo as well as a single toggle filter switch. The pedal was designed to create that sort of almost double-track sound very prevalent in the rockabilly and country community, and it does it extremely well. Here, I've got the modern reissue of the Slapback Echo. It's Electro Harmonix's first pedal in a miniature-style enclosure, which they call Pico-sized, but this one includes some updated controls like gain to overdrive your amplifier, as well as a three-position time switch to give you different slapback options in addition to the original blend knob. Curiously, it lacks the filter switch. As you can see, it's Really, sort of a one-trick pony. This thing really shouldn't be your only delay, what you heard is kind of the full extent of what it does, but if you're looking for slapback echo, this thing is an easy win. The Screaming Bird, also known as the Screaming Tree, is a treble booster for sure, but not anything like the vintage Rangemaster circuits we usually refer to when we say treble booster. If you look at the schematic for the Screaming Bird, it's actually extremely similar to the original LPB-1. The only difference lies in the two film capacitors at the input and output sections of the circuit. The LPB-1 uses two 100 nanofarad capacitors, while the Screaming Bird uses two 2.2 nanofarad capacitors. All this really does is create a filter to allow higher frequencies to pass through in the Screaming Bird. While this serves to create a treble booster in name, it really doesn't parallel to a Rangemaster-style treble circuit at all in terms of character and frequency response. I hesitate to compare this to the Dr. Q, as the Screaming Bird still does have some use, but it's definitely a miss compared to some of Harmonix's other pedals. <music> ¶¶ The Op Amp Big Muff is a large departure from the standard Big Muff, with this new version being introduced as a means of making manufacturing the pedal cheaper. The Op Amp Muff trades the silicon transistors of its ancestors for Op Amp chips, specifically 14558, the same one used in the Tube Screamer, and 1741. While these Big Muffs were designed to sound the same as the original Big Muff, they had a different character entirely to them that sounds less organic and more grungy entirely due to the replacement of the transistors with the op-amp chips. Describing it like that honestly makes it sound like a bad thing, but it really wasn't. The op-amp Big Muff has been extremely popular, and it was easily responsible for the basis of the tone on the Smashing Pumpkins' Siamese Dream album. Here, I've got the op-amp Big Muff reissue, which pays homage to Billy Corgan's use by even saying your pumpkin pie on the box. This one actually includes a switch to disengage the tone control entirely, well, I don't find that very useful, because it gets way too trebly, but it's an attempt to keep the reissue historically accurate to the version of the op-amp muff it was based off of. See, original big muffs not only had their foot switch to turn the pedal on and off, but a slider switch on the top of the pedal near the jacks to turn the pedal on and off as well. Up to this point, each version has kept this arguably redundant feature, but with one version of the op-amp muff, this switch was now repurposed to bypass the tone control. Either way, it's a great sounding pedal with a unique character perfect for that grungy Siamese Dream style tone. In 1979, Mike Matthews did some pretty radical things that would set the stage for the music industry as a whole, as well as his future business. The first was opening what was called the Electroharmonics Hall of Science, essentially a large convention-style facility where employees would do live demos of Electroharmonics products, as well as booths where a musician could try products for themselves. While this doesn't sound like the most innovative thing, as that's the whole concept of most musical instrument retailers today, it was revolutionary in the late 70s. Mike didn't even sell anything out of the Hall of Science. He just opened it on 48th Street, New York City, a street lined side to side with music stores, so that as soon as you left the Hall of Science with the impression of that fancy new Big Muff version, you could just stroll into a retailer of your choice, who just so happened to be Electro dealer, and buy it there for full MSRP. During this same time, Mike Matthews actually assembled a band of six musicians slash employees of Electroharmonics and attended the Soviet Union's consumer goods exhibition in Moscow. This being the first year that the exhibition was open to performers and manufacturers outside the Soviet Union. During this 10-day trip, the band would play live at Sokolniki Park. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Sokolniki Park! <laughs> to advertise Electroharmonics products, as well as develop and build relationships with Russian contractors and manufacturers. This same year, electro also released the Small Clone, a Bucket Brigade-equipped analog chorus with its classic single-knob, single-switch control scheme. The Small Clone's controls were a knob for rate and a slider switch for depth, which isn't the most in-depth, <laughs> pun intended, you could get control-wise by any means but it was simple enough and built like a tank so that anyone could plug it in and get a great modulated chorus sound without much fuss. It was made extremely popular by Kurt Cobain of Nirvana being an integral part of his sound. For me, I'm not too crazy about this as it being my only chorus. I would much prefer something with a little more control, like an MXR analog chorus. You'll see in the demo, it kind of gets a little wacky and a little too vibrato-y for my taste, and it Sends to make some goofy South Park intro style sounds if you said it the right way. It's fun to mess around with, but I don't know how useful it would be on a recording, for me personally.
1: <laughs> ¶¶
0: During the 1980s, Electroharmonics hits quite a bit of drama that results in what could have been the end of the company. They only released one big pedal during this time period, the Qtron Envelope Filter. And before we get into the drama, let's talk about the Qtron. The Dr. Q wasn't really anything to write home about, you guys all heard it. But the Qtron has become one of, if not the most popular envelope filter in production today. It contained controls for gain, range, four different modes, and peak in its original form, as well as a drive slider switch and an effect-slash-direct-out for wet-dry operation. The original version of the Qtron had some limited issues with tracking and shrill treble frequencies in some settings, but ultimately, it led to the development of more popular models like the Qtron Plus and the Qtron Micro like I've got here. This modern reissue has three controls for mode, cue, and drive, and the circuit overall is much more usable than the aforementioned Dr. Q. There's plenty of control to get just the amount of quack that you want, it tracks extremely well, and it's just a really fun pedal to play around with. In 1981, Electro-Harmonix was the target of the Plastic Moulders and Novelty Workers Union, where they organized a protest outside of electro facilities in order to garner a union agreement with Mike Matthews. Mike refused, and what resulted was a somewhat violent picket line where workers wouldn't cross either by choice or by force, as well as UPS not crossing the picket line to ship out orders. The strike caused such a large disturbance that electro lost its financing from Philadelphia National Bank, And quickly became unable to pay their bills. At one point, close to the end, Mike Matthews was running a limited factory equipment and lighting off of a gas-powered generator before the National Labor Relations Board ordered the strike broken, but the damage was already done and the factory ultimately closed along with electroharmonics. Mike Matthews, ever the businessman, began working alone, taking trips to Russia to buy and resell microchips, Only a few years into this venture, Mike gets into contact with a Soviet manufacturer of vacuum tubes after determining their tubes are perfect for use in guitar amplifiers. He begins to act as a middleman, importing Soviet-manufactured tubes for American and British amplifier manufacturers and customers. The factory that Mike was getting his tubes from defaulted on their debts and was forced to sell the business, and Mike's ever-growing client list drove him to accept the offer and purchase the factory after the collapse of the USSR. During this time, Mike Matthews notices that vintage Electroharmonics pedals, which have been out of production for nearly a decade, are becoming extremely popular and commanding high prices on the used market. So he begins venturing into manufacturing pedals again under the Electroharmonics name. He begins with a Big Muff version that he contracts the manufacturing to a previous military factory in St. Petersburg, leading to the development of the Russian Big Muff in 1994. The Russian Big Muff is quite a bit different than the standard sort of Big Muff response, likely due to the differences in components used in the Russian factories. It has a much more defined low-end, less overall gain, and possesses quite a bit more clarity than a standard Big Muff. It's certainly a favorite among many people. Before we get to the sound demo, I just need to address one rumor and put it to rest. For some reason, it's been floating around that the Russian Big Muffs were either made of landmine cases or old tank armor left over from this military factory. It couldn't be further from the truth. They're just regular bent steel chassis. Nothing special about them. It'd certainly be cool if they were made of tank armor, though. Now during this stint in the Russian factory, Electroharmonics also began to manufacture amplifiers under the SovTech name, including the popular MiG-50, an extremely clean, high headroom amplifier meant to take pedals exceedingly well. But curiously, it didn't include an effects loop. For an amplifier that was made and marketed to be a pedal platform, I always thought that was a strange choice. The Russian exports of Mike's factory continued to grow, with vacuum tubes actually making up a majority of the factory's product line, eventually becoming the largest producer of vacuum tubes across the globe. In the late 90s through the early 2000s, Mike's Russian factory began to feel the pressure from a business conglomerate called RBE, or Russian Business Estate. RBE began to take over businesses using less-than-above-board means and devised a strategy to take over the Russian Electroharmonics factory. RBE bought the rest of the complex that EHX was attached to, including Ref Energo, an energy company that directly provided both electricity and industrial gases like oxygen and nitrogen to the factory. RBE offered Mike $400,000 US for his factory, which currently made a profit of $600,000 a month, literally less than their monthly profit to buy the whole factory. When Mike obviously declined, they told him they'd cut off his power via ref RefEnergeo, at the time against the law in Russia, which ultimately blocked the move, even though the threat still hung in the air. Due to this pressure, Mike began to reopen factories for electroharmonics in other countries, the first of which being one in New York City, where they created the NYC Big Muff Reissue, one of the most common reissue Big Muffs on the market with the classic red and black styling many people associate with a pedal. The NYC Big Muff, in my mind, is honestly the standard Big Muff sound. It's got scoop mids, pretty even frequency response otherwise, and it has the capability to get extremely fuzzy, much more than the lower output, smoother Ram's Head and Triangle Muffs. While I like the Ram's Head just a bit more, the NYC isn't anything to sneer at, and it's a great pedal if you really just want something to stomp on and get crazy with. Now back in Russia, the issues with RBE are still ongoing, and it leads Mike to actually start a campaign called Rock and Roll versus Racketeering, which eventually saw success when Mike went before the Anti-Monopoly Commission in Russia and won in court. Electroharmonics still had their energy shut off, but it was restored by the governor the next day. This failure led racketeers to do everything they could to interrupt manufacturing by intimidating workers and causing loud noises and distractions with things like jackhammers outside the complex. Eventually, Electroharmonics' protests would work, but the chief prosecutor that actually assisted Electroharmonics would be assassinated for his work. It's unclear whether or not it was actually due to the support of Electroharmonics and government corruption, But it's kind of wild to think that a guitar company could indirectly result in the assassination of a government official in Russia. I mean, it's like Cold War style stuff. Almost as crazy as that guy David Packhouse, who was an international arms dealer who went on to create a drum machine pedal. Yeah, look him up. It's crazy. His name's David Packhouse. That movie War Dogs with Jonah Hill was about him, and now he makes a drum machine pedal. It's just weird to think about. <laughs> electroharmonics has continued operations with factories in various parts of the world, creating things such as their 9 series, including the Key 9, Mel 9, Bass 9, B9, C9, and Synth 9 preset-operated instrument simulation pedals, and even doing a recent collaboration with JHS based on the Lizard Queen, a fake pedal that Josh walked through building on the show in the style of vintage Electroharmonics manufacturing. Which, by the way, if you haven't seen this video, it's actually really interesting. He goes through everything from prototyping the circuit to making the logos and screen printing with electroset letters. It's a cool look back into history. My favorite pedal from the modern Electroharmonics era is actually pretty simple, the Soul Food. It's a simple, straightforward clone clone that has the same three controls as the original for volume, treble, and drive. While it's not the most feature-rich or the coolest-looking cone out there, it's one of the cheapest ones, and even features selectable and true bypass. It was one of my first electroharmonics pedals, and I'm still a big fan of it. You know, we kind of hit on it earlier, but one artist who's definitely got close ties with electroharmonics is Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. His tone is easily defined by his characteristic use of the op-amp Big muff, especially on the albums Gish and Siamese Dream. This week, we'll be looking at Billy Corgan's tone off the song Cherub Rock from the Siamese Dream album. <laughs> but first... Let's get into the history. Now, the story of Smashing Pumpkins begins, go figure, with Billy Corgan himself. Billy Corgan was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1967. His father was a guitarist. He was a big fan of sports, particularly the Chicago Cubs growing up and began playing guitar in high school, teaching himself as he didn't have the best relationship with his father. He began playing in gothic rock bands inspired by The Cure and moved to Florida when he was 18 with his then-current band, The Marked. The Marked ultimately didn't have any success in Florida, so Corgan moved back in with his father in Chicago during 1987 and began playing with an outfit called Deep Blue Dream. While playing with Deep Blue Dream, he met James Iha, a guitarist in a record store, and began recording with him, eventually meeting Darcy Retzky, who formed a three-beast band together played goth pop with a drum machine at local venues. The owner of the Cabaret Metro, Joe Shanahan, booked the band with the stipulation that they would only be allowed to play with a real drummer, not a drum machine. Billy Corgan was pointed to Jimmy Chamberlain, a jazz drummer by a friend of his, and in October of 1988, after a few practices, the band performed as a four-piece for the first time at the Metro. In 1989, the Smashing Pumpkins appeared on a collaborative record called Light Into Dark, comprised of various different bands local to Chicago, and released a single titled I Am One the following year. The single saw immediate success, prompting the release of another single and a signing with Caroline Records. In 1991, the band recorded their first album, Gish, with Billy Corgan playing almost every instrument except the drums on the track. Gish had enough success to drive the band to continue, leading them to release an EP, then opening for larger acts like Guns N' Roses and Red Hot Chili Peppers on tour. Every member of the band suffered during this period, with James Ihan, Darcy Retzky breaking up, Corrigan becoming depressed, and Chamberlain developing a substance addiction, which led to a much more somber tone in the next album. In 1992, the Smashing Pumpkins moved to North Georgia, outside of Atlanta, to avoid distractions to the recording. Due to tensions within the band and Chamberlain's addiction, it took over a quarter of a million dollars and four months just to record the album. When Siamese Dream was finally released, it entered the Billboard charts at number ten and saw extreme commercial success. The band was instantly catapulted into the limelight and became headliners at Lollapalooza and Reading in 1994 and 95. In 1995, the Smashing Pumpkins went into the studio to begin work on their third album. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Gosh, what a cheerful name. (laughs) A massive album of over two hours in length that entered the Billboard charts at number one when it released and was certified platinum ten times. That's ten million copies in the United States alone. Insane. The album earned the band seven separate Grammy nominations, of which they earned one for the best hard rock performance for the song Bullet with Butterfly Wings also the very fitting trailer music for the video game Dead Space 2. In 1996, the band went on a world tour due to the album, which led to Billy Corgan's signature look, where he went bald, wore a long-sleeve Zero t-shirt, and wore silver pants. Unfortunately, this tour was plagued with issues, where a fan was killed in the midst of a mosh pit. During the tour in 1996, the band's supporting keyboard player, Jonathan Melvoin, as well as drummer Jimmy Chamberlain, overdosed on heroin. Melvoin passed away, Chamberlain survived but was arrested for possession, and subsequently fired from the band, being replaced by Matt Walker. The overall sound of the band would go through a larger change with their 1998 album Adore, where the band would focus more on electronic music. While Adore would enter the charts at number two, it would receive very limited commercial success, failing to even garner platinum status. The tour in support of Adore was quite a unique venture, however, with 100% of ticket sales being donated directly to local charities near the cities they played at, totaling almost $3 million worth of charitable donations, and the band funded the actual tour themselves. In 1999, Jimmy Chamberlain rejoined the band for a short tour. The tour was racked by the, the fact that Darcy Retzky was leaving the band during the recording of their fifth album, Machina slash The Machines of God, and replaced by Melissa Auf der Mar. Machina released in 2000 to enter the charts at number 3, but once again saw limited commercial success, which ultimately led to them releasing one more album, Machina 2. Machina 2 was released with the permission to distribute the album freely on the internet, as the band only pressed 25 copies to vinyl that were distributed to friends due to their previous record label, Virgin Records, declining to offer Machina 2 as a free release. In late 2000, the Smashing Pumpkins played their goodbye show at the Cabernet Metro in Chicago, Illinois, the same club as their first show. During 2001, Billy Corgan and Jimmy Chamberlain briefly came back together as part of their supergroup Zwan, which would eventually break up. In 2004, there was a variety of tweets where Corgan blamed various members of the band for various accusations, including breaking the band up. It really wasn't a good look. That following year, though, Billy Corgan officially announced plans to bring the Smashing Pumpkins back together, playing their first show since the breakup two years later in 2007 at a venue in Paris. The newly reformed Smashing Pumpkins announced a new album titled Zeitgeist, which entered the charts at number two. Like their previous two albums, though, it saw very limited commercial success. In 2009, Chamberlain departed the band once again with drummer Mike Byrne replacing him, and Nicole Fiorentino replacing the band's touring bassist who had recently quit. During this time frame, the Smashing Pumpkins really did something kind of odd with their releases. They started by claiming they were releasing an album with 44 separate songs titled Tear Garden by Kaleidoscope, but would be releasing each song one at a time. In 2011, they announced the release of an album titled Oceania, but still not complete with Tear Garden. Corgan said that the album would be an album within an album. Album albumception. Oceania was released a year later in 2012, to a fair amount of success, entering the charts at number four. In 2014, the band signed a new deal with BMG Records, also announcing that their drummer and bassist had departed yet again, with Tommy Lee from Motley Crue filling in on drums for their new album, Monuments to an Elegy. The tour in support of Monuments featured somewhat of a supergroup as Mark Stormer of The Killers and Brad Wilk of Rage Against the Machine played bass and drums respectively throughout the tour. In 2016, the band almost fully reunited for a brief show with Billy Corgan, Jimmy Chamberlain, and James Eha playing together for the first time in 16 years at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles. Corgan continued to hint at a full reunion but ultimately things fell through with Retzky and the trio moved on with Jack Bates on bass. In late 2018, the band released "Shiny and Oh So Bright, entering the charts at number 54, with the band touring in support of the album through 2019. In 2020, they released the album Seer, which had its supporting tour canceled due to COVID-19. Their most recent album, Adam, was styled as a rock opera in three acts and released as separate compilations throughout early to mid-2023, and the band has currently announced plans for continued tours since the end of 2022. Before his guitar, Billy Corgan currently plays a Reverend Z1 with signature Railhammer pickups, but during the recording of Siamese Dream, he actually used a Fender Stratocaster with Lace Sensor pickups, specifically a Lace Sensor Red in the bridge, Lace Sensor Silver in the middle, and Lace Sensor Blue in the neck. While no manufacturer seems to currently offer this as a stock option, A rough estimate on price would put us in the ballpark of about $2,300 for an American Strat and a set of lace sensors just like Corgan used during the recordings. Lace sensors are actually a bit of a unique pickup situation. They're surrounded by a magnetic plate that allows them to be extremely low noise while being much lower output, similar to a Jaguar pickup. They were even offered as a stock option on some Fender lines for a number of years, but Fender has seemed to move away from them in favor of their own designs. The color of the pickup determines the output, with the red and the bridge being lace's highest output design, and the blue and the silver being more similar to a vintage humbucker. If you're really pining for having a set of lace sensors in your guitar and happen to be handy with a soldering iron, you can always pick up a Squire Classic Vibe Strat and replace the pickups with the same set Billy Corgan used. This will put you at about 760 bucks, all said and done, with the pickups nearly costing the amount of the guitar. While it's not very budget-friendly and it requires some work, For somebody that needs that die-hard Smashing Pumpkins tone on a budget, this is certainly one route to go. Just be aware that lay sensors don't sound all that similar to your classic Stratocaster pickups, so you'll be pushing your guitar tone more in that direction than it would be if you were using a more standard set of Strat pickups. Here I'm going to be using my Cort G290. It's the older version, not the G290 Fat, and it's loaded with an EMG-89 in the bridge that's coil-splittable and two EMG single coil SA's in the middle and neck. It has a swamp ash body, maple top, rosewood fingerboard, maple neck, spursal tuners, and a graphite nut. It's an extremely well-made guitar, and if you can find one on the used market, they go for about 400 bucks, and I highly recommend that you pick one up. It looks beautiful, and it feels extremely comfortable to play. I'm gonna coil split the bridge pickup so we get a higher output single coil, similar in behavior to a Lace Sensor Red. For his amplifier, Billy Corgan is known to be a heavy user of the Marshall JCM-800, a hot rod British amp regularly seen in the hard rock and heavy metal scenes. These amplifiers have two inputs for high and low sensitivity, a preamp volume, master volume, 3-band EQ, and a presence control, as well as a level switchable effects loop and two impedance selectable speaker outputs. They're a beast of a 100-watt amp, but they sell for just over $3,500, certainly not in the budget realm that we're looking at. Now, if you're still looking for a Marshall tube amplifier with 100 watts of power, the Marshall DSL-100 head has you covered with two channels for Classic and Ultra Gain, a three-band EQ, presence and resonance controls, onboard reverb, master volume, switchable effects loop, and a cabinet-emulated output. You're still paying out-the-nose for it at about $1,200, but it's much more manageable than the full price of a JCM-800. Here, I'm going to be using the Vox Valner G Copperhead Drive. $180 amp in a box based on a hot rod and Marshall that includes controls for volume, a three band EQ, gain, and a two position bright toggle switch. It's also using Korg's new tube technology to include a miniature sized but fully functional vacuum tube inside the circuit to make it respond and feel more like a real tube amplifier. In addition to the copperhead drive, we're gonna be using the Two Notes Cab M Plus for a very specific reason. While this thing clocks in at about 300 bucks, it's probably the most useful device in my entire studio, and I use it almost daily. If I were to say it's just a cabinet simulator, while well, that's correct, I'm not doing it justice at all. This thing is a full cabinet, mic, and room simulator with extra tools like the ability to apply its own EQ, as well as simulate power amps and a preamp. The reason that I'm using this is that we know that Billy Corgan's JCM800 was modded to use KT88 tubes. So we'll be throwing the copperhead drive into the Cab M Plus with a KT88 power amp sim active and a Marshall 4x12 cab sim to get as close to Billy Corgan's rig as humanly possible. We've set the copperhead drive with the volume at about 11 o'clock, bass at 1 o'clock, middle at 2 o'clock, treble at 1 o'clock, and gain at 9 o'clock in the bright switch engaged to form the basis of our tone. Now, I'm sure just listening to that, you'll agree with me that that's not even close to the tone on the album. The pedals are a really big part of this, and part of that tone on the Siamese Dream album comes from the distortion pedal, the MXR Distortion 2, a four knob hard clipping evolution of the Distortion Plus, which includes controls for drive, resonance, filter, and output. Distortion 2s were only made from 1979 to 1984, and they're no longer in production. Vintage units will typically run you anywhere from 200 to 300 bucks if you can find them. Here, I'm going to be using the MXR Distortion Plus for only 99 bucks. It's a reissue of the original Distortion Plus, the predecessor to the Distortion 2. We've set the output to 11 o'clock and Distortion to 3 o'clock to start out with a whole mountain of gain. One device that probably imparts the most character on the tone for Siamese Dream is easily the Op-Amp Big Muff. It's got a very trebly, aggressive distortion to it that feels like a wall of sound hitting you square in the chest as soon as you hit your first power cord. Original vintage units, like the one Billy Corgan used, will run you anywhere from 500 to 700 bucks on the used market. Thankfully, Electro Harmonix has taken good care of us with the Op-Amp Big Muff reissue a $96 approximation of a vintage V5 op-amp Big Muff, complete with tone control bypass switch. Here, we've set the volume to 11 o'clock, tone to just a hair past noon, and sustain to 3 o'clock. Keep in mind here that with both the Big Muff and the Distortion Plus running at the same time, we've got such an insane amount of gain going on that we're really going to need a pretty strong, quick noise gate to cinch down on the noise floor. It gets pretty gnarly. Now, while it takes care of our rhythm tone pretty nicely the lead tone has a very digital smooth over sort of quality to it and it's well known that billy corgan was a heavy user of the electro Microsynth, micro a synthesizer pedal with a plethora of controls including sub octaves octave up square wave synth attack delay and various methods of controlling a filter sweep on the synth while these units typically go for a little over 300 bucks we can save quite a bit by running with a Boss SY-1 synthesizer like I am here. It looks relatively simple, with four knobs and two rotary switches and Boss's compact enclosure, but this pedal is honestly like a sleeper car. You know, like one of those Camrys that looks like trash, but it has a tricked-out engine and nitrous going on under the hood? Yeah, this is that, but in pedal format. It has a total of 121 different synthesizer voicings, controls for tone, depth effect and direct mix as well as a dedicated loop and expression control jack this thing is a beast of a pedal here i've set it on the first lead bank on mode five i've set the tone to two o'clock depth at eight o'clock direct mix all the way off and effect level at two o'clock for a great synthy guitar tone that's easily heard during the solo on the lead guitar of this song Now, there's still one thing missing. Billy Corgan himself has said if you want the tone of Siamese Dream, just grab a Phase 100, set it on any one of the four modes, and set the speed extremely slow. The Phase 100 is already a pretty inexpensive pedal at 149 bucks, but we can keep things in the MXR realm and go just a bit cheaper. For only 99 bucks, you can pick up an MXR Phase 90 for yourself, the classic single-knob phaser with its only control being speed. Here I've set the the Phase 90's speed knob to just a hair above all the way down, giving us an extremely slow sweep that adds just the right amount of movement to the lead tone on this track. that's it. While the original rig comes out to just over $7,000, our rig only clocks in at a grand total of $1,373, making a total savings of over five and a half grand. This is one dream that won't be a nightmare for your wallet. <laughs> ah, that was bad. This episode's getting plenty long enough, and I know it's time to wrap it up when I start making low-effort comedy like that. We'll forgo the recording tip for this week. I know, I know, you'll be fine, but I gotta get back to being kidnapped or something. So we talked quite a bit about electroharmonics today, and I know you're probably at the point where you're straight up tired of hearing about it, but I've got one more neat thing for you. Did you know that Mike Matthews is actually a huge World War II history buff? During the situation with the attempted white-collar takeover of his Russian factory, he actually sponsored various trips to World War II battle sites around Russia, like Stalingrad and Kursk, for the children of the workers at his factory. Mike would have them bust around to learn about battles at these sites, as well as provide presence and conversation to the surviving Russian veterans of said battles in hospitals and homes near the cities. I honestly never would have expected that out of him. Alright, it's that time of the day. You know that if you want a Pedals and Pickups t-shirt, you can shoot me a DM or an email on any one of my socials. All you gotta do is tell me your corniest dad joke, and you'll be entered to win a shirt. Completely for free. I'll send it out to you. We'll pick our next winner at the end of July. I promise I won't steal your corny joke for the intro of the show. Unless you want me to. By all means. You know, I run out of ideas very quickly. Hook me up with some jokes. Reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I honestly love interacting with you guys. It makes my day every time I get a message and get to talk to you guys and nerd out about gear. It's a blast to me. I love it. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. All right. Well, hopefully I haven't been kidnapped. Hopefully, I'm still just at work, and I'm safe, and I'm not cold, and I'm not being fed nothing but bread and water, but we'll see when I get back. You guys will hear all about it if I was kidnapped. You know, actually, you know how I know that I was not kidnapped? Anybody that kidnapped me would give me back immediately, You know, I'd start talking to them. I wouldn't even care if I was kidnapped. It'd be great, right? Just sit there, chill, be like, hey... You guys know about tube screamers? You guys want to hear about the difference in tube screamers? And they're going to be like, what? Dude, shut up. And they're just going to kick me out of the van on the road. right? I have zero intrinsic value to the kidnapping industry. And that's okay. I'm probably still just at work. Anyway, I'll see you guys next time. Take care.